Hello, and welcome to this live recording from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. So sit back, listen in, and enjoy what God's got to say to you. I add my welcome onto everyone else's. It's just wonderful to be here with you this morning. This is week three of our series, By My Spirit. And this morning we're going to be unpacking the first 11 verses of chapter 5. So why don't you go ahead and open up in your Bibles there now. You know, I'm not an expert on parenting, but I picked up a couple of things along the way. And one thing that I've noticed is the kids are kind of like ninjas. They're like silent assassins. So most of the time, Sebastian is running around the house yelling like some kind of deranged animal. All right, I kid you not. He's chasing the dogs, and I got two of them, and they're bigs. He's chasing the dogs, or he's jumping on the couch, or he's outside digging a hole that I just filled in. Whatever it is, right? It's loud, it's obnoxious, and it's usually fairly intrusive. But it's also harmless. It's just a kid who has a lot of energy. And it seems to be an endless supply of energy. And apparently that's a good thing. I'm a little unconvinced myself, but apparently it's a good thing. When you really have to look out for is actually when it's completely quiet. So Anna will be sitting on the couch playing Candy Crush or Farmville or whatever it is that she does. No judgment coming from me. Okay. <laughs> And I'll be sitting there reading a book like intellect. No, I'm not the joke. I'm probably watching some sport, something like that, right? And the house is completely quiet. It's peaceful, calm, almost tranquil. That's when you know that something is going horribly, horribly wrong. Because I've discovered that kids, even little people, know that if you're going to do something naughty, you should probably do it quietly. So silence doesn't mean that he's in his room reading a book. Oh, maybe. No, it doesn't. No. Silence means that he's in his room smearing poop on the wall. (laughs) Or margarine. He put margarine all over his door. I don't know why. Honestly, I don't. I don't understand what it achieves. I don't get how it's in any way satisfying. I don't get it. I honestly don't. Oh, I know. It's, It's horrific. It is really, really horrific. Clean that out. Things aren't always what they seem. If it seems too good to be true, I've learned that it probably is. So if you read the first four chapters of the book of Acts, you would come away thinking, man, these guys are amazing. I mean, this church is legit. Let's just read the end of chapter 2. This is what it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. It's a good start. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Not once a week. Every day they came together. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Come on. Everything is fantastic. It's all quiet on the Western Front. They don't have any issues at all. I mean, you'd be forgiven for thinking that. But if you stuck around long enough, you'd realize that it's just not true. So we pick up in chapter 5 of the book of Acts, and all of that comes crashing down as we're reminded once again, there is no perfect church. It's full of people. 
This isn't a museum for the righteous. It's a hospital for the sick and broken. They weren't a bunch of perfect people. That's not why the Lord added to their number daily. Because we'd love that here, right? But that's not the reason. They struggled. They were broken people just like you and me. And this morning, we'll see that. Before we go any further, Jan is going to read our passage this morning. Bless you, sister, wherever you are. Go for it. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sophia, also had sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for your land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for your land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Thank you. So we pick it up with chapter 5 with a man named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. And just as an aside, the word Ananias actually means Yahweh has been gracious. It's not particularly relevant. I thought it was just kind of ironic seeing how this story played out. But you've got to understand, church, there is so much more going on here than meets the eye. See, in one sense, what Ananias and Sapphira did was completely normal. And they didn't come up with this on their own. This was something that happened on a fairly regular basis. And we know that because the previous chapter tells us. If you read the end of chapter 4, it says this. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, all that, at work in them all, sorry, that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Time to time, happened. Not all that uncommon. But then get this. This happens right before our passage this morning. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Yes, that's Paul's companion. Sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. That's the context of our passage this morning. Chapter 4 ends with Barnabas selling a piece of property and then bringing the money and laying it before the apostles. And then chapter 5 begins with Ananias and Sapphira doing the exact same thing. 
We know that their story ended completely different. So what's the deal? What's going on here? We've got to dig a little deeper. And this isn't about money. This is about so much more than that. This is about someone who was playing the Christian game in the hopes that it would build their standing and profile within the church, the Christian community. This is about someone who was doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, who wanted to be seen as generous without having to make the sacrifice of generosity. And that shows you the state of their heart. This is someone who wasn't motivated by the glory of God, but actually was motivated by self-glorification. The very definition of hypocrisy. The word comes from the Greek word hypocritus. Peter would be crying at my words that I just said there, but that's what it means, all right? Something like that, hypocritus, something like that. It means stage performer or actor. Now, somebody puts on a mask and pretends to be something they're not. The early church was full of godly people who had incredibly generous hearts. And instead of praying, Lord, give me that heart. Give me open hands like Barnabas. When Ananias and Sapphira put on a mask. Pretended, played the Christian game. And the saddest part of it all is they didn't have to. They didn't have to. This is how Peter responds, verse 3. And Peter says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. So Ananias sells a piece of property, takes the proceeds and places that at the feet of the apostles. And I wonder what was going through his mind. I mean, they planned this entire charade so that he could stand up there and go, look at me. Look how generous I am. So I wonder what he was thinking as Paul, Peter, sorry, began to rebuke him. It's safe to say that the Holy Spirit revealed this to Peter which means God's not just sitting back, just watching all of this unfold. No, he's an active participant in this story. He wanted to expose their hypocrisy. So he reveals it to Peter, who turns around and says, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you would lie to the Holy Spirit? Now, let's be honest. That's incredibly harsh. I wouldn't recommend that you go around using that kind of language with your brothers and sisters. You're not an apostle. Probably wouldn't go there, right? But Peter is. He's not messing around. And so he just says it how it is. You know, it's just another reminder to us of the spiritual battle that we find ourselves in. Ananias and Sapphira were playing the Christian game. Desperate to be seen as righteous people. They're envious and insecure. And Peter says, you've been deceived by the enemy. Deceived. And I want to be really clear. I'm not saying the devil's behind every rock. And I'm not saying that Ananias and Sapphira were somehow not accountable for their actions. Because the rest of the story makes it really clear they were. God holds them accountable. 
I'm saying the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And one of the best ways he can do that is by dragging us away from our sure foundation, which is the gospel. You've got to think about this story through a gospel lens. The gospel confronts all of it. Hypocrisy at its very core is an attempt to hide the reality of my brokenness so that you might think more of me. That's what hypocrisy is. That's the motivation. Because if you really knew the depth of my depravity, if you, know the, if you knew the thoughts that had gone through my head, the things that I had done, you wouldn't think all that highly of me. I've got to hide it. I say the right things, even if I don't mean it or understand it. I'm going to do what's expected. I've got to play the game, the part. If I do that, then maybe, just maybe, you look at me like, like you look at Barnabas. And I so want you to look at me like you look at Barnabas. And the gospel speaks into that and says, wake up. Have you forgotten what brought you here in the first place? It's okay to not be okay. God's not going to leave you in that place. But he's more than willing to meet you exactly where you are. That's the whole point of the cross. You don't have to have it all together to know that there's a place for you here. You don't have to compare And you don't have to fake it because your place in the kingdom isn't built on the foundation of your righteousness. It's built on his. That's your place in the kingdom. And that's what makes this story so sad. They didn't need a mask. They'd been clothed in righteousness. They didn't need to play the game that had already been won. I can just imagine how all of this must have broken Peter's heart. I'd be sitting there thinking, weren't you listening? I'm in here preaching every day. Didn't you listen to a word I said? It's kind of evident in what he says. He says, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And even after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? In other words, he's baffled. What are you doing? It's your land. You didn't have to sell it. And even after you did, you didn't have to give all of it away. You could have kept half of it and it still would have been incredibly generous. You you, you didn't have to do this. It's not about the money. That's really clear because Luke never talks about an amount. He keeps it incredibly vague because it's not about the money. It's the hypocrisy. The deception that God hates, and it cost them everything. No, there's not a single person in this room that doesn't fit into the category of a broken and sinful person, myself included. And I think I'm fantastic, but my wife would be the first one to tell you that actually, you know what? I got my flaws, they're there. I like to joke around. Sometimes can't stop myself and make myself laugh, and that's a start for something. But you know what? If I'm honest, I know very aware of the fact that actually it gets me into trouble sometimes. I joke at the wrong time, or, or I, I just go too far, or I say something insensitive or stupid, and it gets me into trouble. I thought I was a patient person, and then I had a child, and I realized that actually the Lord's got a whole lot of work to do in that area. I'm not great at words of affirmation, just being not, not great at it. I can be incredibly selfish. I know that. I can be incredibly selfish. And I say all of that to tell you 
God's grace is enough. If it wasn't, I wouldn't be here. You don't have to fake it till you make it. You don't have to play the Christian game. What's more valuable, a perceived righteousness or genuine righteousness that comes from humility despite my brokenness and an unwavering pursuit of Jesus? You're broken? Okay, welcome to the club. Paul called himself the worst of all sinners. That's why he's my hero. The worst of all sinners. And sometimes I feel like I'm right behind him. So this is not the kind of race that you want to win. And yet now I feel like I'm right behind him. Don't play the Christian game. It's not what Jesus wants. Proves nothing. Achieves nothing. The cost is just too high. Too much the Lord wants to do in and through you. To get bogged down in that. Here's how the story finishes. Verse 5. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And a great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some men, young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. But they didn't expect to do that. Probably there just to collect the offering, something like that. And now they've got to carry somebody out. About three hours later, his wife comes in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And the young man came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And a great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. It's a challenging passage of scripture, let's just be honest. I'm not told how they died because it's just not the point. Luke wants you to know this was God's judgment. And you may not like it, but it's really important for us to try to understand it. See, I don't want you to go away thinking that every time you mess up, there's a chance that you could drop dead. That's not the point of this story. And if it was true, let's be honest, there wouldn't be a single person here sitting this morning. Here we are at the infancy of the church. You've got to understand where this stands in the overall historical timeline. Here we are at the infancy of the beginnings of the church, and God draws a line in the sand, just like he did 1,500 years earlier. I don't know if you remember the story, but in Joshua chapter 7, there's a really similar account, also unpleasant. Joshua leads the people over the Jordan, and they begin to conquer the promised land, one city at a time. But God had given them some really clear instructions. Don't take any of the plunder. It's mine. God was the source of their victory, so the plunder was his. And everybody knew that, and everybody obeyed that, everyone but Achan. Good old Achan, there's always one. Couldn't help himself. Sees his robe, beautiful robe, it says. Not just a robe, it says this is a beautiful robe from Babylon. 200 shekels of silver. I don't know if that's a lot, sounds like a lot. And a bar of gold. He sees all of this, and he just can't stop himself. Even after everything that he'd seen God do, the power, it couldn't stop himself. 
So he takes it and it costs him his life. See, God was drawing a line in the sand and his message was pretty clear. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm sovereign over everything. I cannot be fooled. So be holy as I am holy. That's why God says, go consecrate yourselves. You've sinned. You need to make yourself holy before me once again. Go consecrate yourselves. Hundreds of years later in the freedom of the new covenant, God draws another line in the sand and his message is pretty clear. And you've got to understand how much had changed The cross gave us unprecedented access into the presence of God. If you were to go back just a couple of years, one man was allowed into the presence of God once a year. And that was only after he'd ceremonially cleansed himself. And even then, they'd tie a rope around his waist just in case he was unclean. And so dropped dead in the presence of God. Think about how much has changed. We don't have to sacrifice anymore. We can talk to God whenever we want. He lives in us. Think about that. God of the universe lives in us and guarantees our salvation. The grace of God on the cross changed everything. But it is so easy to take that grace for granted. To focus on the love and the mercy of God to the exclusion of everything else. And yet here, God draws a line in the sand and says, I am holy. I'm gracious and I'm kind. I don't just love, I am love. I define it. My mercies are new every day. My promises are secure. I am always working for your best placed my spirit in you and seated you with Christ. I'm not just your king, I'm your father and your friend, but I'm also holy. Holy. I'm still sovereign over everything. I think the cross changes who I am. And put me in a box and, and turn me into some kind of vending machine, I am still holy, still sovereign over everything. Created all things and sustained them by my power. I hold your life in the palm of my hands. I am holy. So be holy. Ananias and Sapphira had lost sight of the holiness of God. And yet his judgment stands as an everlasting reminder to the church. Don't forget this, it's too important. That's why they were seized with a great fear. They knew this was a message for them, just like it's a message for us. And yet even within that, you've got to understand This isn't a fear of something evil. It's not the fear you have of someone breaking into your home. This is a fear based on the sheer magnitude of who God is. He breathed out the stars. He's infinitely holy. And there's something terrifying about that because we're not feeble, broken, finite. That's why Isaiah, remember the story of Isaiah comes face to face with God. What does he do? Falls flat on his face. 
cries out, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips before, sorry, and I have, my eyes have seen the king of glory. In other words, I'm not even worthy to stand in his presence. I, I shouldn't be here because I'm ruined. And we know that God actually places a coal on his lips and declares him clean. That's the grace and the mercy and the love of God. But that's the kind of fear that Luke is talking about. It's a reverential fear because of how great our God is. And when you pair it with the grace and the mercy and the love of God on the cross, it gives us something beautiful. It shows us the totality of who God is. I want to invite the band to come back up on stage and to lead us in worship. Here's my takeaway for you this morning. Well, this passage stands as an everlasting reminder to the church that we serve the lion and the lamb. And we press into the grace of God. It's our future and our hope. If it wasn't for the cross and the sacrifice that Jesus made, this wouldn't exist and we wouldn't be here. We worship Jesus as the Lamb of God. We cling to the Lamb of God, but we hold that intention with the lion. Cannot be the people who abuse the grace of God. We cannot focus on the grace and the love of God to the exclusion of everything else. He is love. He defines it. He's also a consuming fire. That's why Hebrews says it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of God. He is a consuming fire. He's holy, majestic, and awe-inspiring. When we lose sight of that, we allow the enemy to shrink God to the point where we can put him in a box. And I'm telling you right now, God cannot and will not be put in a box. He is the lion and he is the lamb. And we actually need both. We want both. And our God is who he is because he is both. We're going to sing that song in just a moment, but I want to read out some of the lyrics for you. This is more than just something that's coming from our lips. This is our declaration this morning. This is our hope. The chorus says, our God is the lion, the lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles. Every knee will bow before you. Our God is the lamb, the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. His blood breaks the chains. And every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb. Oh, every knee will bow before him. Father, we come before you this morning. And we pray forgiveness, Jesus, for when we've tried to put you in a box, when we've tried to mold you into the our image, to what we want you to be, as if we somehow stand over you. Father, we cling to you in all that you are. We celebrate and we worship and we cling to the lion and the lamb need you each and every day if it wasn't for your grace we would be nothing but in just the same way we are so grateful for the lion 
you with all of your power, your majesty and your glory. You, the unstoppable God that you are, that you would be with us. That you would walk beside us, that you would go before us, that you would fight our battles, that you would be our fortress, our shield. We worship you. And we ask Jesus that you would help us and our hearts help us grab hold of these two aspects of who you are. They're not competing perfectly in union. Help us see that, Jesus. We want to know you more. We want to understand you on a deeper level. This we pray for in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. If you'd like to talk to someone about what you've heard today, then you can contact the team at Mount Pleasant Baptist Church by calling the office during office hours on 9329 Thanks for joining us. We look forward to your company again soon. God bless.